This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 26th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, we look at the latest opinion polls and the National Party takes action on climate change without taking any action. I'm Andy Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Nietzschean Ubermensch. The federal government has fallen to its lowest level of political support in the latest round of opinion polling. And this is after there was an expectation that perhaps the numbers might start turning around for them after New South Wales ended its lockdown a few weeks ago and vaccination rates continuing to rise, with New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT achieving first dose rates of over 90% for the population aged over the age of 16. Victoria is also out of lockdown, but it might be a case where people are not going to forget what caused these lockdowns in the first place and the electorate might not be in a forgiving mood. There's the ongoing fallout from the government's decision last week to knock down a referral by the Speaker of the House to investigate Christian Porter's Blind Trust, with some senior legal practitioners suggesting it's time for this government to go. And just the usual reminder, opinion polls are just opinions, and the old cliche that the only poll that counts is the one on election day. But Scott Morrison is looking a little bit worried. He's a front runner, and like all Prime Ministers, he likes to be in control. But he knows that time is running out if he wants to turn public sentiment around. One thing that he has in his advantage, of course, is that opinion polls have lost a lot of accuracy. Now, you can never look at one poll and say this is exactly the story because there's a whole range of factors, the people they ask, uh, the questions they ask. But when you put all the polls together... Generally, if you were prepared to chart them, and people like uh, famously Malcolm McCarris and Anthony Green did all this, uh, I've mentioned the poll budger, William Bowe before, and Possum Comitatus, who uh, is with Crikey, I think. And you can trace then a more accurate. And this is where these analysts, till recently, and those are the only four I can think of, by the way, there are others, tend to get it right, as do the bookies who look at what the analysts are saying. The last couple of elections, the polls have been radically out, suggesting either people are telling the polling companies one thing and then voting another way, which doesn't seem likely, telling them one thing and then changing their mind, which is a bit more likely. And when I say doesn't seem likely, I'm sure there are people who do that. But it's really the methodology. Now, I'm, I'm not here to slam into the polling companies. Most of them are actually fairly honest. They have their biases, of course, and they may ask questions that might suggest one side is more popular than the other when it may not be. But generally, their methodologies are good because if you think about it, you can't afford to have a, a business that's consistently, consistently wrong. And I know that some of our listeners are saying, you guys do all right. But in a business that requires you to be able to be an accurate predictor of things, you can't get it wrong too often. 
But at the last federal election, every single poll, I think, suggested that the Liberal National Coalition would not hold a majority of seats in the House of Representatives, meaning that they could not hold government. This turned out not to be the case. Once the polls start falling to this level, it's difficult to come back. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. Paul Keating managed to do it, so did John Howard on several occasions, and so did Scott Morrison just recently in the 2019 federal election, which is what you just referred to. And there's also the comeback factor where it doesn't matter which government is in office, there's always a swing back to the government in the final few months of the parliamentary term. It might not be enough to win, but there is usually a swing back to the government. And these are some of the issues that Scott Morrison might be taking into account, that there's usually a swing back to the government, and he's done it before. But the issue is that Morrison was relatively unknown in the 2019 federal election. We know a lot more about him now. We know that he's a liar. We know that he changes what he said in the past. He goes missing in action when there's a crisis, as he did during the severe bushfires last year. He stuffed up the vaccination rollout. He'll say one thing today and a different thing tomorrow. So we know a lot more about Scott Morrison than we did at the last election. So he'll have to rely on a lot more than just thinking, well, I've done this in the past, so I can do it again. And it's also that case that just because something has happened in the past, it doesn't mean that it will happen again in the future. Past performance is no indication of future uh, results, but patterns that have worked are generally tried again. There's going to be pork barrelling. I think it'll be a lot more subtle than last time. New South Wales ICAC has probably put the pork barrelers on notice that they're being watched and some things just don't get done. There'll be promises made. The sudden new, as we discussed, uh, green liberal parties probably won't get the traction that they hope they might. That argument hasn't finished yet. It's definitely not a given that Scott Morrison will lose the next election. I think the only thing certain is that he will lead the party to the next election. And that's only been sure in the last six months as we've gone closer to an election. I don't think the party would want to replace him at the last moment. Nobody wants the hospital pass. Any serious challenger he he had has shot themselves in the foot. He hasn't even had to be a wily Menzies type and start promoting people out of work or alienating them. Josh Frydenberg, for example, who was touted as someone who was going to roll uh, Morrison, has shown his unfitness for the role. He's lost a lot of support in Victoria. He may not win the seat of Kuyong. And if he does win, it'll be with such a slim margin, he won't have time to even be treasurer, I think. That, of course, we will see. Christian Porter, he was touted as a possible replacement. I can't see how he can come back. And also, as we've seen over the past 12 years, it seems like it's never too late to remove a leader anyway. Labor did it twice within three months of an election, first of all in 2010 and then 2013. Malcolm Turnbull was removed nine months before the 2019 election. So it's never too late to remove a leader, whether that's the leader of the government or leader of the opposition. But to me, right at this point of time, Morrison seems to be a little bit panicked. He's being forced into areas that he doesn't want to go to, and not just the areas, but also the cities that he just doesn't want to go to. He doesn't want to go to Glasgow, but now he finds that he's actually going there. And as we've said before, we won't actually believe that he's actually going to the COP26 conference until he gets off that plane in Scotland. 
is being forced to deal with climate change by the international community and having to deal with the National Party on net zero emissions. So there does seem to be a level of panic there and it's hard to know how Morrison performs under these sorts of pressure because he hasn't really had to deal with them in the past. Most prime ministers, when faced with the flight or fight response, fight. The wiser ones pick the battles, but you generally don't get to the role of prime minister by running away from conflict. John Howard or Paul Keating relished the conflict. I don't think Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard relished the conflict, but they were prepared for it, and they certainly went in hard. Tony Abbott relished the conflict. Without the wisdom and sober judgment of his mentor, John Howard, Bob Hawke, the consensus uh, prime minister, of course, loved the conflict and was quite prepared to go in boots and all to a conflict when it was prudent to do so. Scott Morrison is the other way. We have a national emergency. Oh, well, I'm taking the kids to Hawaii because I promised them. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Leaving no one really in charge too. Even Gough Whitlam, who was overseas when Tracy hit, made sure that it was um, Jim Cairns who went up till Whitlam came back. And Whitlam did take his time coming back. Having said that, Cairns was doing an exceptionally great job, called by many people Cairns' finest moment in public life. And it probably was. I doubt there'll be a December election now uh, because he'd prefer it after the 10th or the 13th. And uh, that's just getting way too close to Christmas. And then you'll get the resentment of people voting him out just because it's too close to Christmas. January, forget about it. I still think we're looking at a March, February, March election as it stands now. Of course, he could announce an early December election today, tomorrow or this week. His natural instinct is flight, not fight, which is not a great thing for a politician. Well, we change our minds about when we think the next election is going to be held. And I think it's just that we're so enthusiastic about the next election coming on pretty soon. But when the facts change, well, we change our minds as well. So that's the way that it's always been. But on some other issues related to the next election, and this is an issue that came up last week in federal parliament where the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Tony Smith, he was totally rolled by the government the first time that it actually ever happened in federation. And some senior lawyers and barristers are now starting to speak out against the federal government, suggesting that they lack transparency, they lack accountability, and they've gone too far. Here's what Geoffrey Watson had to say about this. I've seen my role over the years in this respect as being an independent role. It's not party political role. And I've avoided that at all costs. But the last two years I've sat on the sidelines and I've watched this same government. They've trashed transparency. They've trashed integrity. And now they're in the process of trashing parliamentary procedure. Enough is enough. Something has gone wrong with this government. I say that it's time for this government to go. Geoffrey Watson is a state council and he's been a senior investigator at the New South Wales ICAC. And it's not like he's some junior lawyer just out of the College of Law. He's a senior lawyer and senior barrister within legal circles. And when he speaks, people listen. If you've got a senior lawyer speaking out like this, it does mean that there are serious problems within this government as far as accountability is concerned, as far as transparency is concerned. And they might have gone a bit too far on these matters. In the last podcast, I was furious at 
people not speaking out. Watson had, I think, spoken out, and I acknowledge that. I've also noticed that uh, Lisa Wilkinson spoke out about it, and Nikki Sava spoke out about it, two journalists who I don't always agree with, but they were absolutely right to call it out. I think Nikki Sava used the term stupid, which pretty much fully agreed with my <laughs> analysis. I'm also not saying that because I said that they've listened to it and had a change of heart. I'd like to think that was the case, but I think in all humility, I cannot say that. It is good. And so I want to retract it a little bit that people are starting to speak out and people who matter are starting to speak out. That Watson interview was heartbreaking in that he could see the damage being done. Now, there's an argument that it's only convention. And sure, it is only a convention, but it's a really important convention. And once you start breaking these conventions, what other ones do you break? The right to free speech is a convention. The right to public assembly is a convention. So when you knock back a speaker's ruling as they did, you're really bringing up other things that you could knock back. The convention that you don't arrest the loyal opposition, as it's called in Britain. They're opposing government policy. They're not opposing the government's right to govern. And the, the government is not opposing the opposition's right to oppose policy. You can't go and arrest the leader of the opposition because you don't like what he or she is saying. You can arrest them if they break a law. But the laws, as defined by the Crimes Act, shouldn't include political actions that have been a long tra tradition. This is where we start to worry if their own speaker, their own speaker can be undermined like that, and we said it last podcast and we'll say it again, he should have resigned. He should have said, this is beyond the pale, I am stepping down as speaker. What do they think of things like a governor general edict, elections, court rulings? All of these things are now hanging by a thread. So, David, it's the final quarter and we're kicking with the wind. Now, I really hate these football analogies in politics, but that's where we are at the moment. That's the analogy that Anthony Albanese first used when he became leader of the Labor Party in May 2019. He was criticised for not releasing very much policy or not taking it up to the government or not giving the electorate enough of an idea of what Labor is all about. And in response, he suggested that in politics, you have to wait until the final quarter and then start kicking with the wind. And just to continue this football analogy for just a little bit longer, Labor has been 10 goals up at three-quarter time in previous elections, and they've been kicking with the wind, and yet they've gone on to lose those elections. Albanese has said in the past that now's the time to start taking it up to the government. He announced that during the budget reply speech in October 2020. And then again, he said the same words in the budget reply in March 2021. And we still seem to be waiting a little bit. Many Albanese supporters have been suggesting that you keep your powder dry for the election campaign. And Albanese has even been suggesting that there might be an election in December, as have so many other people. So that's just around the corner. So it seems like here we are. The final quarter has seemed to have already commenced. Labor is 10 goals up. The wind has started blowing maybe not according to the National Party. There's not enough wind for wind power, but that's a separate issue. Politics and campaigning is all about seizing the key moments. Labor has got a very good message to put forward to the electorate, and there's so much that they can attack the federal government on. 
there's incompetence, there's mismanagement, corruption, and, and we're probably not getting enough cut through from Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. But you might look at opinion polling and think, well, we're travelling at 54% support in the opinion poll, so we must be doing something right. But does Labor run the risk of keeping its powder dry specifically for the election campaign, but when it reaches out for the powder, it's not actually there and it hasn't got enough time to reach out for more? What Anthony has forgotten too is that at least one of the refs owns not only the team but the rules of the game and I'm talking about media really and to stretch the football analogy a bit further when Labor is offside half the team gets sent off to the sin bin when the Liberals and Nationals are offside it's a play on situation and a goal is even awarded so I think the best leaders of the opposition, and they're the ones who generally went on to become Prime Minister, but Whitlam and Rudd, for example. Some would put Tony Abbott in here. I don't, because his Prime Ministership wasn't great, because he opposed too much, and they spent so much time opposing and being undignified and you know, running out of Parliament so that the numbers wouldn't and being stopped and this awful, that when he got into office, they didn't know what to do. So I don't think that's being a good leader of the opposition. Not only do you oppose the government, you set up a framework for how you will be good government. So yeah, so Gough Whitlam did very well. And what I think Labor needs to do is start to present even further what a Labor government will look like. Now they have done that, but it's not cutting through for whatever reason. We can blame the media. We can blame that they don't get airtime. But as we've said at a state level, that's not a factor. Queensland and Western Australia and Victoria have extremely hostile media. And yet those are three of the most popular state governments in the country. And I think two of them are the most popular state governments ever. So it, the communications in Labor needs to work out how they can get these messages through, both by highlighting the incompetence and corruption of the Morrison government, which shouldn't be hard, but also by really starting to build the idea that this is a credible alternative government that will be better. Uh, and I think that goes down to the communications team and having always strong policy works. I know that the small target comes out every now and then, oh, we've got to be a small target because they'll just rip everything down and they ask about costings. You have all that ready. You shoot that down before it becomes an issue. And of course, the government is right to question an opposition's policies. That's debate and, and discussion. But if your position is strong enough, the government has nothing to stand on. Well, it does help if you do have the media on your side. But as you mentioned before, Queensland Labor governments, WA Labor governments and Victoria Labor governments have managed to win elections with a hostile media against their interests at pretty much every election. But we do have to remember that when Anastasia Palaszczuk first got into office and also for the WA government, Mark McGowan, when he got into office in 2018, they were up against quite incompetent governments. And it didn't matter what sort of media attacks were being forced upon them by the pretty much the Murdoch media and Seven West media, they still managed to win those elections, primarily because they were up against incompetent governments. And for me, it's a similar situation at the moment. Like the Liberal National Federal Government is quite an incompetent government. And maybe it's the case where these governments just vote for themselves out, irrespective of how solid the media support is for them. 2013 on, though, they've been an incompetent government. Vested interests, big egos, little talents, corruption. 
there's a couple of disturbing suggestions. No more than that, that Scott Morrison was tied up with Daryl Maguire in the cash for visa scam he was running. Scott Morrison was Minister for Immigration at the time, so we may not have heard the end of that yet. And again, it, it may be that it never got to a ministerial level anyway. I don't want to accuse anyone of anything that they haven't done, obviously, but these suggestions have started to float through. The corruption in New South Wales may have moved up to a federal level at some level of whether it's senior public servants facilitating this, whether it's backbenchers, or whether it goes to the minister. At the moment, we don't know. We can look at the division and turmoil of the Turnbull years, where Malcolm Turnbull's biggest threat wasn't from the Labor Party, but it was from the lunatic right wing who just didn't let him do anything, and he didn't have the ability or the strength of character to be able to stare them down in a way that other prime ministers with factional problems were able to stare down the other side. John Howard, when he was leader of the opposition, was able to mend those. Bob Hawke was able to, while Paul Keating was smacking down the left, Bob Hawke was smoothing it over. John Curtin had all kinds of things. And Labor had been through a massive split not that long before, and he had to be able to, to do that. And then, of course, the Morrison years have just been rabble. They can't even follow convention for a speaker's rulers. Had he not panicked, he could have said, oh, yes, we will hold that inquiry and put it off till after the next election and then hope everybody forgot about it because Porter might not be in office anyway. Instead, they just shut it down, which is not the actions of a calm, canny political operator. It's the action of a panicked coward, unsure of what to do. But I don't think these things head out without consequence. And I think that Morrison, in trying to avoid consequence, is just piling consequence upon consequence. But we've seen this before. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, the National Party claim they've agreed to net zero emissions by 2050. But will this agreement just hold until the next federal election? The National Party has apparently agreed to net zero emissions by 2050, but no one is actually sure about what they've agreed to, and the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce just the day before said that he wasn't actually agreeing to net zero, just agreeing to be part of the process. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means, but we do know that it could mean something or it could mean nothing at all. We're probably going to go through a classic smoke and mirrors exercise here where Scott Morrison will give all the words and impressions that Australia will commit to net zero emissions by 2050. We won't be able to see the fine print or any of the print and we'll just have to take Morrison's word that all of this is just going to be okay. 
Whatever the National Party agrees to, it won't be worth the paper that it's written on. And there's 21 people in the Federal National Party that continue to hold Australia to ransom on climate change. And people whose view of the future, shall we say, is tied up with the past. People who have really destroyed the social contract. Anti-Rousseauvians still fighting the arguments that have been long settled of the pre-French Revolution. You know, we don't have any need for a social contract. We're all individuals and billionaires can go on making as much money as they like because, well, they might employ people, maybe. The money might trickle down, I promise. It'll be in the long run, but you'll get it, I promise. George Christensen, a man of questionable moral fibre, I think it's fair to say. And in that, he keeps threatening to split from the government and never does. So does he have no real principles or is easily bought off? Who else do we have? Barnaby Joyce, who was rolled in cabinet. Most leaders who get rolled in cabinet publicly resign. And sure, it's a discussion, but often leaders get rolled on stuff that they don't feel that strongly about and decide to put up and the party room says no, and um, you move on. But he was rolled on a, a matter of principle. Why is he still there? We can go on. Bridget McKenzie, one of the biggest rotting federal governments we've ever had. She's still leader of the Senate. She shouldn't even be in parliament. On and on it goes. These people don't care about the future. More radical projections of the climate catastrophe give us till about 2026 or 2028 before the planet becomes unlivable for humans. 2050 isn't that far away. We'll likely still be alive and watch where the North Pole used to be and it's now an ocean. We're seeing the Arctic and the Antarctic shrink. We're seeing longer summers and shorter winters. We're seeing Newton's law. We might have less rain, but we get a lot more of it in shorter periods of time, causing flooding, causing all kinds of issues. We have more intense wind incidents, such as tornadoes and cyclones and all of that. There's only 21 MPs and senators in the Federal National Party, and one of those, you mentioned his name before, George Christensen, he's not even going to be there in the next parliament. He's retiring at the next federal election. But he said that he's going to fight hard for coal jobs and not bend to the demands of the United Nations or greenie mobs. We've also heard that the National Party, in exchange for supporting net zero emissions by 2050, they're demanding... $250 billion of support for regional programs. And as a comparison, the overall federal government spending is around $700 billion per year. So the National Party wants $250 billion made available for regional programs. And we've talked about this many times before. You can just imagine what sort of corruption would go on here. Port barrelling, mismanagement. And you can imagine that if there's a sports rorts fund that created all of these issues and corruption factors with a fund of $200 million, which is only 1% of $250 billion, you can just imagine what sort of corruption and rorting would go on here. So that hasn't been guaranteed, but that's what we've heard. And But there are other things that have been guaranteed. So far, the National Party has been offered an extra cabinet position, and they'll be asking for a lot, lot more for signing up to supporting net zero emissions by 2050. But you cannot have a situation where a rump of a party is they're not just holding the federal government to ransom they're holding the entire australian community to ransom as well and i probably wouldn't mind if 
they were representing everyone in their electorates because that's the job. And yep, the electorate of uh, Barwon, say, got more because they had a very strong National Party member pushing for the new highway and making deals for the honest deals. <laughs> I say in the shadow of ICAC, making deals for the for new halls to be built or education initiatives or, or what have you. But they're not doing that. They're shoveling the money to the big miners. The more you look at it, the more clear it becomes that they're there representing 10 or 12 people maximum. And the other dangerous, and this goes back to, I think, their view of law. You can buy democracy. You can buy the government. It doesn't matter what people vote for. These economically large but personally small rumps of people can change things thanks to the poor representatives that people continually elect. I really think the next, the best vision for the next Australia might be a small C coalition of independents making sure that every piece of legislation, every grant, every acquisition is debated in parliament and debated in committee and thoroughly worked out and those that are in the best interests of Australia get through and those that aren't get knocked back. How that would work long term, I suspect it might, but it might help clear out some of the dross, the seat warmers, the members who can barely read, the members who ask the wrong question in question time, the members who think that it's okay to vote down an edict from the speaker, the members who think that getting a commission on top of a little deal that they've done is perfectly okay as a public servant. The media trumpeted this arrangement or accommodation with the National Party over net zero emissions. They trumpeted this as a big win for Scott Morrison. Even though there's no details, I would have thought that you would wait until at least some details are released before you start blowing that trumpet, but maybe that's just me. We know that Morrison is all based around meaningless words and positive images. And this process now is all focused on winning the next election, 2030 or 2050. That may as well be an alien planet for Scott Morrison. He's just focused on the next couple of months. And we know that Morrison promises everything, but nothing arrives. Federal Corruption Commission that was promised in December 2018, three years later, was still waiting Vaccination promises, it took forever to roll out the vaccination program across Australia. Quarantine centres, they've been promised, but nowhere near being built. Bushfire relief fund, not a cent paid almost two years later. Climate change action will more than likely be the same. All words and promises in the lead up to the next federal election. But if Morrison wins the next election, we will see no action at all on climate change. And we probably never will under a future Liberal national government. We need better communications from all parties. We need to tell our politicians that we're sick of platitudes, we're sick of slogans, we're sick of childish arguments. We need to tell the parties we want people of substance. We need to look at what the law is in Australia and how it works. We're heading towards catastrophe and they're happily driving us to it for the sake of a few extra dollars for maybe them, but definitely their donors. And what will that achieve everyone? We've got to go back to a social contract and looking at what's best for everybody, not just what's best for the few. This isn't socialism, by the way. This is pure democracy. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. 
If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.